welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. We are uh, starting a new series today because it is starting to look a little bit like Christmas outside, isn't it? Uh, Brother Danny said to tell everybody 20 days till Christmas, and that's what, like three shopping days, Brother Danny? He said he can't wait for it to be over. So we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. Some of you guys are mad at Brother Danny that I said that now. Getting closer and closer to Christmas. And one of the things I love about living in Batesville is I love that when Christmas time is here, you don't have to question if it's here. If you go to town, it's like, boom billboard Christmas is here and you see all those lots reflecting off the river and um, I'm like a little child I really, really love and enjoy doing that. So I always have this excuse, like, oh, I got to take my family to go see the lights. And, and we go down there to see all the lights. And we did that last Thursday and rode the train with Oakley and had a really good time down there. And if you go down there, there is an unwritten rule. I don't know. It may even be an actual law here in Batesville that if you go to the Christmas lights down at the park, that you have to have your picture taken where? In the tunnel, very good. Like this picture coming up here, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about. There's a tunnel down there that they have uh, covered with lights, and I'm glad they moved it. It used to be on this little rickety bridge, and then they put this cage over top of it, and there's like 100 people on it. I'm like, if you fall off, the, if this falls, we're going to die. But anyway, beside the point, you have your picture taken by the tunnel. If you have social media, you'll see about 100 of these before the season is up, is going to the tunnel. I wanted to share with you a story that I saw a couple years ago. We were waiting, and of course, everybody's real polite. You, you have to walk through the tunnel to get to the other part of the lights. But, but as you're uh, going across there, there's so many people and they're all stopping and getting their pictures. So you're kind of like in this, this line of waiting to go across the tunnel. There, there was this family in front of us and they walked up to the tunnel and, and um, they all took their pictures. And then there was a young man there with a, what I assume was his girlfriend and all the moms and dads and aunts and uncles and all those people moved out of the tunnel and, and took a picture of just this boyfriend and girlfriend together. And, and after the picture was taken, she started to walk off and, and he pulled a ring out of his pocket and kneeled down right there in the middle of that tunnel and proposed marriage to her. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. I think that happens a lot up there at this. But you know, what a Christmas gift for somebody to think of giving another one is, is this gift of engagement. And, and if you think of what that is, it's a gift of a promise. Right? Like, like, like there's this promise that one day we're going to be united and spend our life together and be husband and, and wife. But what engagement is, is it's, it's a promise of all things that are in the future. All things that, that will happen eventually. And in the meantime, there's a lot of planning and preparation. And you got to figure out what flowers to have at the wedding and where to have the wedding and who we're inviting. And if we're not asking that one uh, angry cousin to come, where we're going to live and all of those things. And engagement is this exciting time of waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. And there's this belief in the person that made you this promise that this will happen even though there's really no proof of it. There's, there's no way of guaranteeing that. And one of the things that I love about being a Christian is that's like our entire life, is we live with a belief of promises that have been made to us that are all in the future, that have not come true yet. And if you read your Bible, it is just promise after promise after promise after promise from a God who owes us nothing to us who doesn't deserve any promises. 
And so as we're looking at the Christmas story this, this, uh, this month, we're going to be looking at the promises of God. You know, I think about the things that, that mean a lot to me that God has promised us. I mean, obviously, God has promised to never leave or forsake us. That's one of my favorites because if, if there's anybody who's leavable, it's, it's me. Like, but he, he promises he won't. He promises that no matter what we're going through, how big or how small it is, that, that if we call out to him, he will focus his complete attention on us and what our heart is asking from him. Most importantly, and probably the reason most of us are Christians, is he's promised us eternity with him, that one day we will be with him. And by the way, you know how he defines our relationship as the church with him? He defines it as an engagement that one day there's going to be a wedding where we are the bride and he is the groom. There's this waiting of promises in the future, and that's just who our God is. So as we look at Christmas, what we're actually celebrating is we're celebrating promises that God made and obviously promises that have come true. And it should remind us about the promises that will eventually come true, the things that he will eventually bring because he kept his promise to bring about Jesus Christ. Because God looked down at this world, and I don't know if you guys have looked at the news or looked outside, but it's chaotic out there. I mean, if you talk about sin bringing death, we see that every day. You, you look at the news or you look at social media or you look at your kids or whoever, like, like sin brings chaos and brokenness into this world. And God has promised, he looked down at this world and he promised, I'm going to find a way to take what is broken and fix it. I'm going to find a way to make sure that death is defeated and life is restored. And I'm going to take, I'm going to take away all of the wrong and eventually make it right. And our Christmas series looks at the promises that God made over time about bringing us our Savior, about bringing us the answer to the sin problem and all the things that plague us. And just like an engagement and just like getting married, he didn't promise it and it happened. There was a long time where there was a, a period of planning and preparation by God to, to keep that promise so that he could, so that he could, um, so that he could save us. And in Matthew 1, you probably look at that. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know what's coming. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you need to look down at Matthew 1 and go, oh no. Because Matthew 1 is what we call a lineage or a genealogy, right? It's just this name after name after name and all of them that you can't pronounce. And we tend to kind of like glaze over Matthew 1 because it's just like a name of somebody I don't know, a name of somebody I don't know. And sure, it's important, but what can we really learn from it? But what I see in Matthew chapter 1 is Matthew is not just laying out name after name. What Matthew is doing is tracking the promises that God made through the generations for nearly 2,000 years. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to start tracing this problem with, or tracing this promise with Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. We'll stop there, but keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Now, now Matthew, when he starts tracing these promises, he doesn't just pick a random place in history. He goes back to a specific time when God promised it is starting, the, the beginning of the process. You might think of that like the proposal of marriage where he comes and says, this is the beginning of the promise that will one day be fulfilled. And that beginning of the promise takes us all the way back to Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to if you want to. And in Genesis 12, it introduces us to a man called Abram, or as we know him, Abraham. And we don't know very much about him. We know some things about who he's married to, what his lineage is, who his parents are. And that's really all we know about Abraham up until this, this startling revelation that, that God talks to Abraham. 
we can just take a pause there and think about that for just a second. Like, that's not normal that God talks to this man. The God who created the world talks to this imperfect and nobody person from nowhere in the world. That's not normal. Now, you as I, as Christians, God communicates with us. He convicts us. He may even, he may even speak into your soul, but not the way that he talked to Abraham. And go to Walmart sometime and walk around and ask people, hey, does God talk to you? Has God talked to you? Have you talked to God? Does God talk to you? And eventually, they're going to start to think you're crazy. Nobody is going to be like, oh, yes, God comes and sits in my living room and talks to me. But it actually happened with Abraham. Abraham had this discussion, and this is what God says in Abraham, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. And in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now in this just couple of verses, in this little bit of conversation that we have between Abraham and God, God makes three promises. And if you keep up with our take-home truths, it's a long list today, we're going to track the promises that God makes down into the birth of Jesus. So promise number one that God makes to Abraham here is that Abraham will become a great nation. And all that means is a great nation means it'll be a big nation, a nation full of people. And throughout history, we have seen that Abraham's descendants have been a nation. They haven't always had a country, but they have been a group of people that are like-minded, that have the same values and the same belief systems as each other. And so you see that in Israel today. Some people call that Palestine. Uh, we've called that the land of Canaan, the area where that is today. But you see that that nation of people spread out across the world that God kept that promise. Promise number two that God made in this is that all people will be blessed by this nation. Now what God promises to this nobody, this Abraham, is, is a worldwide impact. That all people, now he didn't just say some people over in America and some people in China and some people in Africa. He said that all people will be blessed by this nation that I'm going to bring out of you. Now you and I, listen, I think you're pretty special. And I think that you've done great things for God, but there is nothing that anybody in this room will ever do that will have a worldwide impact on every single individual in the world. We just, we don't have that ability. But God said that he would do that. And number three, maybe my first prom, or my favorite promise out of all of them, promise number three, everything that must be done for this to happen will be done by God. If you look back into those verses, what does God say? He says, I will I will make you a great nation. I will bring this about. And we're going to see that a lot as a, as a theme through our, our promises today. As God comes to us and he says, I will do this. I've got a lawnmower problem in my house. And, and this lawnmower, I bought it used. And that's kind of to be expected that you bought it used. But it's like, I'll fix one thing and I'll break another thing trying to fix that one thing, right? And every time this lawnmower breaks, I finally got it. The reason I'm talking about this, I got it fixed Friday. The one thing that always happens is like, I'll put that lawnmower over in the corner and I'll be mad at it. And Jessica will be like, what's wrong with you? And I'll walk in and be like, I've got to fix that lawnmower. Now, what I don't do is I don't take my phone out and push a YouTube video of how to fix it and lay it on a lawnmower and say, you figure it out, lawnmower. I'll be back tomorrow. Have that new belt put on or that new mandrel housing or whatever I'm having to fix on it. No, I take the responsibility of that and I make the repairs happen. And when God looks down at this broken world, he doesn't just put us off in a corner and say, you guys, you guys figure it out. Here's some instructions about how you can be better. No, God, God takes the initiative on himself and says, I will fix this. I will make this work. And maybe the best promise out of everything is that God promises us that he is in control of fixing the sin problem in this world. 
And a lot of times when you hear something like this, we'll talk about this big word, prophecy. And that's what this is. This is a prophecy in the Bible that God is telling us what he is going to do. And when I hear the word prophecy, I think of like revelation. And I have no clue why I think this, but I think of some God getting, I don't know, like possessed by the Holy Spirit, their eyes turning wide, and they begin talking about the future. That's what I think of with prophecy. But that's not what prophecy is. All prophecy is, is a promise. Where God says, I have a plan, and let me reveal to you how I am going to make this plan happen. That's all prophecy in the Bible is, is God's just saying, I'm going to do this. Consider yourself informed. And so when we look at, at this, God is revealing this plan to us of what he is doing, and he promises us that I will do that. But there's one problem with this promise that he made Abraham. It's impossible it's literally impossible for this to happen, for Abraham to become a great nation and for God to use this great nation to bless all the world. It can't happen. Abraham has no children, which means that his children can't have children. His children's children can't have children, and you get the point. But, but what God does is he says, I'm going to make that work anyway. And Abraham and Sarah come to him and go, we're too old. We can't have kids. That, that won't happen. I think we talked about this with Larry and Glenita the other night, didn't we? God's promises of being too, <clears throat> never mind, not being of childbearing age. I don't know what I'm saying. But like God promises, I'm going to do this. And Abraham and Sarah are like, yeah, that's not possible. It won't happen. But when God says, I will do something, he's informing you, no, it's not impossible I've already, I've already planned it, and it is going to happen. And you see the continuation of this promise if you follow the scripture in Genesis 17, 19, as the plan is in motion. God comes back to them, and God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. So as you follow God's promises, these promises get more specific. God doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to give you a nation. God now says, I'm going to give you a child, and not just any child. You're going to name him Isaac. And it brings us to promise number four, is God will establish an everlasting covenant with Isaac and his descendants. Now, to understand the promise that God's making there, we need to understand what a covenant is. And a covenant is an agreement of two, uh, between two people for a certain actions to happen. You and I might call it like a contract. Like, like a, we've all been in that place where we're buying a house or we're buying a car and we sign a contract where we ask a bank, I need money, what will you give me? And they agree, we'll give you X amount of money. But a contract has two sides. I'll give you X amount of money to buy your house, but you're going to pay it back and what is our part of it? Plus interest. But when we look at this covenant of God, you see that this is not a contractual agreement. This is a one-sided covenant. Everything about this, God just says, I will. I am going to do this. He doesn't say, I will do this if. He doesn't say, I will do this until they mess up. God says, I will establish my covenant with them forever. The actions of man cannot help or hurt this. And I love this about what this reveals about God's plan of salvation because that's what we're looking at, isn't it? Is God's plan of salvation and bringing Jesus to the world? It's from the very beginning of God's plan. God doesn't require anything of us. He doesn't require us to figure out how to earn our own salvation, nor, nor does he say there's a way for us to mess up our own salvation. No, what God says is, I will provide that for you. I will do the work. God takes ownership for the work and the plan. It's not contractual where he says, you do this and I'll save you, or you don't do this and, and I'll make sure that salvation is available to you. God says, it's on me. I will provide a way. 
And all we have to do is accept that. Secondly, with this covenant, what's interesting about this is he claims to give us an error. I'm sorry. He promises to give us an everlasting covenant, not just, not just a covenant that lasts for a while because I'm personally engaged in a covenant with my wife where, where I have promised to stay with her forever or at least until one of us dies and then that covenant is broken. But when God makes this covenant with Isaac and with his offspring, he says it's an everlasting covenant. That means that it's going to be bigger than this family. The Bible promises us that this earth will fade away. And I hate to break this to you. If this earth goes away, we're in trouble. We're not going to be here. And so this covenant has to transcend not just, uh, not just the moment that God promises it, but it has to transcend the birth and the life of this family and this nation. But this promise is eternal, made to and through this offspring. So now we're tracking this promise where God says, I'm going to make a great nation that all the family will be blessed in. Or I'm sorry, all the families of the world will be blessed in. And that I'm establishing an eternal contract, an eternal one-sided covenant with your people. And if we continue tracking this lineage and tracking this promise, we'll see that, that Isaac grows up and he has two sons. Most of us know the story of these. Uh, Esau is the oldest. They're twins. Jacob is not the oldest. Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. It's this interesting story that we don't have time for. But as Jacob grows older, God comes to Jacob in a dream. And I love this once again, because when God promises, I will do this, he's not sitting around waiting for Jacob to come to him. God goes in pursuit of Jacob. And in this dream, this is what God says to him. This is in Genesis 28. Um... And God said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, thee will I give it, or to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Promise number five. God will give Jacob's descendants a land of their own. This is that land that you, you hear of in the Bible if you read Exodus. They keep talking about the promised land, the promised land, this land that God promised to us, and they're pointing back to this specific promise. We later call that the land of Canaan. Technically, it's known as Palestine today. It's where modern-day Israel is. And so God promises to do this, and then he repeats that promise that he made to Abraham. That number two promise that we talked about. He repeats that promise. And through your descendants, all of the families of the world will be blessed. And I find that interesting that God just brings that promise back out. It's not like his first promise wasn't good. He just reminds us of that. And so what is God promising in that when he says all of the families of the world will be blessed? And we focus on that word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? I've got a lady I work with and I love it. I'll ask her. I'll see her in the mornings and I'll say, say how are you doing today? And she'll always say, I'm blessed. We, we say those things like, this is a blessing, or I was blessed with a job or a family or something like that. I was blessed with these things. And what the word blessed means is that you were giving something that you did not deserve. That, that somebody, specifically God, decided to give you something that you had not earned. And I love what God is promising here. He said, I'm promising to give the world something that they don't understand, something that they can't earn, something that they don't deserve. It's a picture of God's grace here. This undeserved grace of God saying, I'm going to give them something. I'm going to give them my love even though they don't earn it. I'm going to give them mercy even though they can't uh, ask for it. And Jacob grows to have those 12 different sons. And at the end of his life, he calls his sons together and he speaks into their life. 
He speaks to each one of them, and he, he kind of prophesies a little bit about what their families will do, what their life will be like, what things are going to happen, and he gets to one of his sons named Judah. And this is what he says to Judah. He says, Judah, thou art uh, he whom thine brethren shall praise. Thy ha- thy, <clears throat> let's try that again. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. That's really important, that word Shiloh. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So as Jacob is speaking to Judah, we see another one of these prophecies. And because it's in the scripture, a promise from God, a promise that people looked to for thousands of years waiting on this. The first thing that he promised Judah is that out of Judah, out of your lineage, there, there will be a royal ancestry there. We see that as he tells him, your brothers and your brother's family, they will all bow down to you. You're going to be in charge. You're going to have control. You're going to have authority. And, and he goes ahead and qualifies that da- with um, saying, you will hold a scepter, which is just a, I don't, in Arkansas terms, it's a fancy stick that says that you have power. And he promises him this, that there will be a, lo- a royal lineage or there will be a lawgiver in between their feet. I'll explain that more here in a minute, until Shiloh comes. And that Shiloh is an interesting word in the Bible because in the Old Testament, Shiloh is used 33 different times. 32 of those times, 32 of those times, it is talking about a place. But if you see in this instance, let me read it to you again, what he says. He says, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of people be. So in this instance, Shiloh cannot be a place. Shiloh is a person. Promise number six, Judah's descendants or a lawgiver will carry authority. Now, as we've gone through this over the past 10 minutes, and you could read the whole story of Genesis in just a couple hours, it seems like this promise is moving really fast. And that's what we expect with God and his promises. Like, you promised it, I want it to happen, because we're Americans and everything happens instantaneously for us. And we get mad when it doesn't. You guys remember the days of dial-up internet? You know that, Sam? The kids don't even know what we're talking about. And you were so excited. You're like, look how fast it's loading. And now I get mad if I click on something, and by the time I move my mouse to the other side of the screen, if it's not loaded for me to click on the next button, I'm like, why is this thing so slow? Like, we are so spoiled thinking that promises should happen quickly. But God's promises don't always happen quickly. And just what we've covered so far today, 230 years between the time God made this promise to Abraham to what we're talking about with Judah, 230 years, they're still waiting on this promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, as you look at this, God gives a couple of promises to Judah, adding to that promise of Abraham. Judah's descendants will be royalty, and we see that, we see that with David. David establishing a dynasty that will last 415 years. And secondly, though, there's a promise of this, this person that we don't really know, that this Shiloh will t- come and take the power of Judah's uh, lineage. And what we now know about that is this has always been understood as what we call a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy of a Messiah coming, a warrior king who comes to save the nation of Israel. They didn't know from what, but they knew that there would be this warrior king who would come and take power. And at that moment, the tribe of Judah will yield its power to this warrior king. 
And then after David's dynasty, we'll see some lawgivers and stuff in between that time period. So here's how the math works. David becomes king. He has a dynasty where it's passed down between his children to his children to his children to his children for 415 years. If you study your Old Testament, you may be familiar with what's called the Babylonian uh, exile. What that means is the neighboring country of Babylon took over Israel and took most of the Jews out of that area. But even during that time, God kept a bit of authority with the Jewish people. People like Daniel rising up in the government, all the way up until a king named Herod. There was always a king over Israel. Even when they were taken over with somebody else, there was a king or an authority over Israel. Herod was the last one. And when Herod died under the Roman Empire, Rome took away all ability for Israel to govern itself and put a Roman governor over Israel. So if this promise is true, that, that David's dynasty, Judah's royal lineage will travel either through that royal lineage or through lawgivers in between their feet, that means that when Herod died, either one, God didn't keep his promise and he forgot to bring the Messiah, or by the time Herod died, the Messiah was with us. And there's an interesting story in your Bible about King Herod. King Herod was sitting at his, at his palace one day and he's enjoying the life being king of the Jews. And he was a very jealous man. He'd kill family members and everybody else to make sure that nobody stole his power. And a group of wise men, we call them magi, a group of magi coming from the east come to him and like, hey, we heard there's a new king. King Herod, yeah, just king of the Jews, that's awkward. Uh, could you tell us where to find him? And King Herod's like, no, but if you tell me, I will worship him, kill him. So there's like this, this moment where King Herod is announced, hey, your kingdom is over. And this is four years before the death of King Herod. And what those wise men were following was a star that led them to Bethlehem where a little child named Jesus was born. See, when God makes a promise, it comes true. And when we talk about these things in the Bible, it's not like we're just making up fairy tales. God promised us these things would happen and then he brought them about. So promise number seven is Shiloh, which is the Messiah, will take Judah's lineage and authority. And so far, Matthew has tracked all of this. Matthew's tracked us all the way to David. So let's keep reading past that. If you still got your Bibles open, this is Matthew 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 1, 3 through 6. And Judah begat Phares and Zerah of, of Tamar. And Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram. If anybody's planning on having a children, this is where you go for, you know, names if you're having a hard time figuring it out. And Aram uh, begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Nassan, and Nassan begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And so what we're looking at is by the time we get to verse 6 of Matthew's genealogy, he has now been 600 years past Judah. He's been tracking this promise from Abraham for 830 years up to the point of David as David starts his dynasty of kings that will last for four, over 400 years. And so, so far, as we've been tracking this promise, we've had the promise of God promising Abraham, you will become a nation. And out of this nation, I will bless all of the world. A promise that God is doing this not because of what we can or can't do. A promise of an everlasting covenant with this family. A promise with land for this family. A promise of royal authority and a promise of a Messiah to come take authority. And so far, we've seen parts of that promise taken care of. We've seen the nation come out of Abraham, this impossible task, 
We've seen that God has provided them with the land that they were promised. We've seen David come to authority. And we've seen that God has done all of this. That this was not done of men who went out and figured it out by themselves. But we're still waiting on Shiloh. We're still waiting on the Messiah. And we're still waiting on that blessing to all of the world. And in the reign of David, he had this mentor, a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan was the man that would come to David and call him out when he messed up. And Nathan came to David with a message from God. And this is what God said to David. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now I want you to notice one more time how many times God has said, I will do this. That's eight in just a few verses we've read where God's promises start with, I will do this. And in this, he promises David offspring or a son that will do a couple of things. Number one, they will build a house for God. And at first glance, it sounds like he is prophesying about the birth of Solomon, the king or David's son who takes over the kingdom after David who then built what we call the first temple. So at just a glance, we might look over that prophecy and say, okay, God gave him a son and they built a house for God. But there's something that was missed there. It says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now once again, either God lied or we misunderstood the promise. Because David's kingdom, the throne of David's family, only lasts for 415 years. That's not forever. And so there's a deeper promise here to what David is looking at. Our promise number eight is God will establish an eternal throne of authority. So as we look at those words, I will establish his throne forever. We see that after David's dynasty, we have those client kings that, that still rule over Israel. And after that, there should be a Messiah. And Solomon's temple was built and torn down, and there's a second temple, but this Messiah will do something big. He'll have an eternal kingdom. God will establish his authority forever, and he will build a house. But what does that mean? There's an interesting story about this Jesus that we've been talking about, the same Jesus that was born right before Herod's death. Jesus spoke to his disciples, and he spoke to the Pharisees of the temple, and he spoke about this temple being torn down and rebuilt in three days. And people freaked out about it. They said, this guy's a heretic. He's going to tear down a temple and rebuild it in three days. That's impossible. And in truth, that is impossible to tear down that temple and rebuild it in three days. But what we find out as we follow the story of Jesus is he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He tore down that temple and rebuilt it in three days, not physically, but spiritually. Because what that temple always was, was a symbol of God's presence with his people. Within this temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, and it was surrounded by veils. And God's presence dwelt there, separated from people because of their sin, but still with them. See, God has this problem with sin that he can't be around it. And we kind of look at that like that's kind of judgmental of God, like he just can't be in the presence of God or of sin. It's just the truth of who he is. But you and I are a little bit like that. Think of the one crime that you think is the most heinous of all. Could you be friends with the person who committed that crime on a regular basis? I was watching a TV show the other day and was um, tracking some of these criminals from Jamaica. And what these criminals do is there's a huge black market scheme of scamming. You know how you get those calls 80 times a day and they're trying to sell you something that doesn't exist? And it was tracking some of these criminals. And, and here's what they said. He said, we call and we offer them like a brand new car, like a Mercedes or a million dollars or something like that and tell them that they've won that. And they just have to send us this processing fee. 
Now that's bad enough, stealing from people and tricking them that way, but what really upset me about it is what they said. He said, you know, the people that actually respond to that, because a lot of people go, I, I wouldn't, if somebody called me and offered me a million dollars, they'd be like, yeah, get real, nobody's gonna give me a million dollars. So the people that respond to that are the people who are so lonely and they're so desperate for something good to happen to them that they're, will, happen to them, that they're willing to believe anything. And that just breaks my heart because you're preying on the weakest of the weak and it makes me mad. I can't be friends with that person that does that. I can tell them about Jesus, but I'm not going to hang out with them and listen to their stories about how they are hurting people. What is it for you? Mass murderers? School shooters? Child molesters? Whatever that crime is that disgusts you that much, God is that disgusted by our sin. Our littlest sin, that pride that nobody sees where we think I'm better than other people, God is that disgusted by it. And he couldn't be with us for that very reason. He stayed behind the veil. But when Jesus died, he took the punishment of all of those sins. And maybe the best thing that you can read in the Bible is that veil that symbolized the separation between us and God. Of its own, it was torn. And you know what? I think that the presence of God just burst out of there with so much fury that that thing just couldn't withhold it. And God was available to all of us. And in that, Jesus changed the function of the temple. That the, the, I'm sorry, the, um, Jesus changed the structure of our relationship with God that the temple represented. The temple represented that God wanted to be with us but was separated from us. And Jesus tore that down by rebuilding that relationship where we have uh, access to God. And this is still 900 years before Jesus comes. I'm sorry, going back to what we're talking about where this promise that we just talked about is still 900 years before Jesus comes and dies on a cross. And if you follow Matthew, he continues to track that promise. And he begat, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat. And I'm not gonna stumble through those names, but we'll go to the very end of this is what matters. If you still got your Bibles on Matthew 1, this is verses 16 through 18. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. What we see here with God is a completion of the promise that Matthew has been tracking. 1,800 years, 1,800 years after he first promised Abraham that he was gonna do something special through his family, the Old Testament records God working on this plan and we see the generations waiting on the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's what we sing about when we sing about, you know, away in the manger, this, this miraculous birth of Jesus being born. And as we celebrate, celebrate Christmas, I think we're really bad about getting sucked into just the Christmas traditions. It's just a story we talk about at church. And then we have these traditions like we're going to decorate the tree and we're going to give gifts and we're going to eat certain food and we're going to make the special cookies. But the truth is, is what Christmas is, is we celebrate God's promises. We celebrate a God who would come and he would shoulder the responsibility for coming to us. We celebrate a God that reveals himself to us. He reveals his promises and we celebrate a God that keeps his promises no matter what. And I think it should remind us of who God is because God also reveals his motive for why he did this. Why did that God who created the world talk to Abraham who didn't deserve it? Why did God shoulder the responsibility for your and my sin? Why would God do this to bring Jesus? And the answer is found in a verse that I think everybody should know. It's, it's John 3.16. What does it say? It says, For God so loved the world 
we see that God's motivating factor here is love, and it moves him to action for us. And that action is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You guys got your Christmas list picked out? Danny, you got your Christmas shopping done? Oh yeah, Danny's got it done. You know, Christmas has become about giving and getting gifts. Like, that's what we do. And we kind of like, we want to make it cool for our kids and, and we want to give our spouse something that they will enjoy and love. And we kind of get focused on, can I get the deal at Black Friday? Can I find this? Oh, they're going to be so excited. But you know why we give gifts? It's, it's a remembrance of what God gave to us. Because we love someone, we are moved to action to give them something. And it's a reminder of God's presence with us because he loves us and he was moved with action to give us grace. Live if you want to come up here. Throughout this whole promise, God has always said, I will. I will do this. And all that's left is the gift has been bought, it has been wrapped, it has been presented to you. All we have to do is accept that. Because see, God is disgusted by who we really are. We don't like to say it. I won't tell you many of my stories, but everybody up here could get a microphone and could just shock the world with the things that we've said and done and seen and experienced and wanted to do. Every last one of you could do that. But God loved us enough that even though we were dirty, nasty people, he gave his son because he loved us so much. And that gift is out there to be accepted. If you haven't accepted that gift, today is the day. All it takes is choosing to put your faith in him and following him. That's all he asks of us. He's already done the work. This is our reflection time. If you want to pray, if you want to talk to me, this is available to you.